You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, SpyCast brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about SpyCast, or if you want to suggest someone who might be a good future guest, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Also, if you like what you hear, and even if you don't, please take a minute to review us on iTunes or whatever platform you might be listening. We're always looking for ways to make SpyCast better, and you can help. We're joined today by four authors who have all come from very different professional backgrounds and who all turn that into very different kinds of fiction. But what they have all in common, and the reason we asked them all here today, is that they all do it very well. So I'm going to introduce them, but not their full introductions, because, man, these are some accomplished authors. It would take half the time to introduce all of them, the full thing. So you're just going to get a gist of who these people are. We have Sean McFate, who is a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council and a professor of strategy at the National Defense University and Georgetown University School of Foreign Service. In addition to several nonfiction books, Sean is the author of the Tom Locke series of novels, the newest of which is High Treason, which just came out earlier this month. Thank you, Sean. We also have Alex Finley, who's a former officer, CIA's Director of Operations, where she served in West Africa and Europe. Her writing has appeared in Slate, Reductious, Funnier, Die, Politico, and other publications. She's the author of Victor in the Rubble, a satire about the CIA and the war on terror, and Victor in the Jungle, a satire about the pitfalls of populism. Thank you, Alex. We also have P.W. Stingers, a strategist at New America and a professor of practice at Arizona State University. Along with a number of nonfiction books, he's also the co-author of a new type of novel using the format of a techno thriller to communicate nonfiction research. Ghost Fleet, a novel of the next world war, was both a top summer read and led to briefings everywhere from the White House to the Pentagon. His latest is Burn In, a novel of the real robotic revolution, which has been out for just about a month now. So you should check that out. And finally, we have Brad Thor who is the number one New York Times bestselling author of 20 thrillers, good Lord, including Backlash, Flying Master, The Last Patriot, Blowback, and The Lions of Lucerne. His newest book, Near Dark, comes out in just about a month on July 21st and can be pre-ordered now, of course. So thank, thank you, you for being here today. We really appreciate you taking the time. Um, I'm going to try to corral the crazy by pinpointing questions to specific authors but it doesn't mean that author is the only one that can possibly answer this question. So feel free to jump in. But let me start with you, Brad. As the one full-fledged professional writer from the get-go, you know, you started your career in entertainment and then writing. Let me ask you, when you started, you didn't necessarily have life experience to draw upon. 
How did you go about researching for your books? How did you work to get it right? I know you've shadowed units in Afghanistan. You've done things like that. Can you talk a little bit about how you got into the business of it's writing a, this world? Great, great question. So Stephen King once said, and I really believe this is a great piece of advice, uh, don't write what you know, write what you love to read because that's where your passion is. And believe it or not, you've got a mini PhD in that genre because you've been reading it for years. Now I had, my dad's a Marine, no longer active. Uh, we had a very close friend of the family who is a SAC for the FBI. His last post was in New Jersey. Um, and I had a neighbor when I was going to USC who was part of an interesting intelligence unit at Fort Bragg where they shared uh, a compound with Delta before Delta built their, their new compound. It was called, they used to call it the Fiesta Cantina because of the buildings and stuff. And these guys, the, the army had combed through the ranger battalions looking for people who had grown up speaking German. And they recruited these soldiers and trained them and put them in Berlin so that if the Russians ever overran the wall, this was a guerrilla force that was there with the radio sets uh, plastered up behind walls and beer stubes and weapons caches and Krugerrands. The, the idea was is they would slow the Soviets down if they ever overran the wall. And this was a neighbor of mine. So I parlayed this in another relationship with Harry Humphreys, who was one of the uh, original plank owners of SEAL Team 6, into, listen, can I buy a beer? Can I buy a steak dinner? Can I ask you, what can you tell me about tradecraft and all this kind of stuff? So basically, I went out and put together my own mini PhD would be really overblowing it, but trying to understand what the training's like, what the situations they face and that kind of stuff. It's just on the ground, hardcore research is what it was. Sean, let me ask you about your protagonist, because I think I'm interested to know how much of you did you put into Tom Locke? Are your personalities similar? Yeah. You draw upon yourself to decide which direction to take his character. You know, yeah. it's a experience. Thank you. I mean, Tom, Tom Locke is essentially me, but he's much more badass and a lot more damaged. Uh, I began writing fiction by accident. I was actually writing a memoir of some stuff I had been doing in Africa as a private military contractor, sort of a paramilitary for the US government. And we did some really cool stuff, stuff that the CIA or special forces would traditionally do. But my agent was like, no, 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 Sean, if you write that, you'll be sued to death. So he said, fictionalize it. I'm like, fictionalize it? That's, you know, very competitive. It's, you know, it's full of people like Brad Thor and stuff like that. So, <laughs> and so, but it launched the series and uh, Tom Locke is, me had I stayed in that world and the, the the purpose of the novels is to have a good time but also to pull back the curtain on a new way that foreign policy is executed today and that's by contract in contract you know fancy way the way we say lethal action for assassination contract military is a fancy way of saying mercenaries that's right, right the n-word yes the kind of dirty way of putting it so let me, let me turn to you, Alex. You're a former operations officer at CIA. In your novels, I have to say, you hilariously skewer the agency forward, backward, and sideways, or at least your fictional version of the CIA, the CYA. I'm wondering about the response from your former colleagues. Regardless of your satirical angle of your novels, there's a lot of sad truth in your book. So how have the people who you work with professionally reacted to your fiction? I am very happy to see that actually was my biggest fear writing that first novel, writing Victor and the Rubble, was how my former colleagues would respond to it. And I have to say I had really good feedback. Um, and a lot of them came to me and said, you know, 
finally somebody has written about the agency in a way that really actually gets at the truth. It isn't as wonderful as these thriller uh, books can be, they're not always very close to the sort of mundane reality that we we face when we're when we're overseas. Um, I'm I'm the buzzkill who tells James Bond he has to do his, you know, his expense reports and Money Penny telling him, I hope you have personal liability insurance for that Aston Martin. So I, I was really pleased with the feedback, and in fact, I have on good authority that one. Uh, chief of station in Africa made Victor and the Rubble a uh, mandatory reading for anybody coming to his station. The, the book, I just, you laugh at just the mundane. It's just wonderful, the bureaucracy of the, the everyone's dealt with PowerPoint and wanted to throw a computer through a wall. But you don't think about James Bond trying to get a PowerPoint ready or others that, that way as well. So let me turn to you, Peter. When a lot of your contemporaries in the spy techno thriller field were keeping things, let's say, relatively small and contained, terrorists, individuals working inside and outside of government, you and your co-author, August Cole, went full Red Storm Rising and kicked off a full-blown shooting war with China and Ghost Fleet. Now in Berlin, you have AI, cyber terrorism, robotics. How do you choose your bad guy? How do you choose from all the potential threats out there, Russia, the Norks, bioweapons, whatever, who are representing your principal antagonist in the novels that you're writing? So we feel like we're serving sort of twin masters in this. One is uh, the, the gods of writing and entertainment. So we try and pick what we think is going to be the most compelling story. And that's not just on your bad guys. It's also when you're thinking about your heroes. Uh, but also we're trying to share across important issues that we don't think are all that well understood. Uh, so for Ghost Fleet, when we started it, it was actually back, oh, um, say 2013, and um, both all of the attention in the policy world was on terrorism, counterinsurgency, uh, and we were saying, no, you, you have the rise of a China, you have the return to something that uh, we'd not been thinking about, great power rivalry, even the idea of a great power war, which had been unthinkable for a generation. And um, that was a little bit uh, kind of anathema, but yet we wanted to push forward with it. But the funny thing was we got the same kind of pushback from the publishing world. Um, you know, most of the stories, even Clancy had gone to terrorism kind of stories. And we were saying, no, actually you could go back to these big, you know, Red Storm Rising like novels and they would be all the more compelling because guess what? That's where the real world is headed as well. And the same thing with Burnin. Um, most of the narrative around AI is around robot uprising, and yet we're living as this science fiction becomes real. And so it, it allows you to explore in the real world uh, these sci-fi themes, but in kind of a manner that's more exciting because it's happening in familiar places and playing out in ways that uh, we will all experience. And one of the really interesting things if you follow each uh, Twitter feed is seeing the ghost fleet moments being called pulled out and pulled out as real life actually catches up with the novel which is set a little bit in the future you're gonna you're gonna see something similar i expect looking at burn in with the, the you know kind of burn in moments where reality catches up with fiction yeah i would say Vince, one of the things that uh has been kind of interesting and disturbing to us we've also been you know doing these hashtag uh burn in book moments is that i knew the technology part would come true because uh, you know the book, it's a it's a novel, but with endnotes, so we can document the research. The part I was not prepared for was the dystopian aspects coming true. Like there's a moment in the book; it's all set in Washington D.C., 
and there's a militarized uh, high fence thrown up around the White House. And it was exactly where they put it in reality. Or there's another moment that we thought would be, you know, so dystopian riot police around the base of the Lincoln Memorial. I think it was like nine days after the book came out. And so, you know, it, it, one, it, it sort of, that's a situation where you uh, don't want to be like, I told you so. Um, But it's also, I think, shown the value of using um, these, you know, fiction as a way of sharing real world research. Well, I appreciate all of that. I wrote a book that included using nuclear weapons against hurricanes and saw where that got us uh, moving forward. Um, let me ask a question of Peter and Brad, and let me ask you about the power of fiction. Ghost Fleet was read by a huge chunk of the U.S. NATSEC community, and Brad, you're part of the Department of Homeland Security's analytic red cell unit. I'm guilty, I'll admit this, of not giving fiction the respect it perhaps deserves. In what ways can fiction be used beyond its entertainment value? Uh, let's put that first. That's a great question. Uh, I think it was Dan Brown and Dan and I are pals that said a thriller writer's job is to beat the headlines. So uh, for those who are watching, listening, that don't know what the analytic red cell unit was, uh, its name has been changed, but it's just like SEAL Team 6, you know, the, the evolutions of the names, uh, you know, Dev Grew or whatever. Um, but in the wake of 9-11, when the Department of Homeland Security was created, the federal government before the 9-11 Commission report realized that 9-11 happened in part because of a failure of imagination on the part of the United States government. So this problem of always fighting the next war by looking in your rearview mirror or the next threat was a problem. And so the federal government is probably one of the most forward thinking and aggressive programs I've ever seen them put into place, said, let's get outside the beltway thinking and bring it into D.C. and bring in creative people that might not be at DIA or CIA or the NSA. Let's bring in creative people and have them work with us in trying to come up with scenarios that we might not be thinking about. Well, what are some potential soft targets in the U.S.? What are threats to American citizens abroad and all this kind of stuff? And it was really impressive because when you get creative people together, they're not necessarily super disciplined. So the fact that they was like, you know, herding cats is the one thing that I always think of. But the fact that they could get people to focus and put them with all the alphabets in the soup and come up with scenarios. Uh, in fact, I remember I came up with one scenario that uh, that got a little traction inside of DHS. And then that exact scenario played out overseas. Uh, and I said to the person that I was working with there, that was kind of my contact. I said, OK, can I now this is in the newspaper. Can I say this is one of the things that we developed? And they said, nope. What happens in the red cell program, I joke, it's like Las Vegas. What happens in the red cell program stays in the red cell program. The only thing they ever popularized uh, and publicized was a hurricane event where they said one of the red cell things they'd looked at was what would happen if terrorists focused on uh, an area that was about to get hit by a hurricane, either going to relief centers or the way we marshal trucks and forces and all that kind of stuff outside the path path of the hurricane to bring those in. So, uh, So I do think it's valuable. I think creative people can come up with ideas that are, you know, some of them are going to be way too far outside the box. But, you know, I'd always heard for years the story at the Pentagon of all the binders. Okay, the Canadians are invading. Pull that binder down. You know, we've we've war game this. What are we going to do? Peter, how about you? So we um, stumbled into this. Uh, you know, we originally wrote uh, Ghost Fleet mostly for the entertainment value, much like uh, Brad was saying. You know, we we wanted to give people uh, the kind of experience that we had personally enjoyed. You know, reading early Tom Clancy, 
And yet along the way, the book ended up having greater policy influence than my nonfiction books had. Uh, you know, as you mentioned, we were briefing at the White House, um, Senate testimony. Um, it caused uh, multiple different uh, actual real world investigations to happen to the Navy even created a $3.6 billion ship program called Ghost Fleet. Now, they gave us zero dollars out of it. Um, I needed a, a better agent on that. But um, from that experience, that's, we sort of leaned into that in burn in and um, you know, bake that into the very concept of the project. But what it comes back to is three things that we've discovered about this idea of useful fiction. The first is that um, narrative can have a uh, more powerful and more effective way of sharing ideas. Um, the researchers call this synthetic environments. And the simple way to think about it is that your brain uh, is programmed to take in story in a better way. It's the oldest communication technology versus a PowerPoint 30 years old. Um, the second is narrative hits, it's not just easier to understand concept, it hits emotions uh, and causes action. So for example, um, some admirals talked to us about how they were, uh, they read Ghost Fleet, it was a nightmare scenario for them, and then they wanted to act to make sure that nightmare scenario didn't come true. And then the third is um, novels uh, and narrative of any kind are more likely to be shared. No one ever said, oh man, that was such a good PowerPoint. The next vacation you're on, you ought to take it with you. You know, no one ever said, man, you know, I needed to go to sleep, but I just sat up in bed reading that white paper. Um, but they do that about novels. They want to talk to other people about it. They want to share it, including some of the most powerful people. And, you know, we've already seen that with Vernon. Um, the book's only been out a couple of weeks. And, uh, you know, I've briefed it everything from senators to literally 30 minutes ago with um, leaders in the British military. And it's a novel, but you know I'm getting in there because of the novel and baking and sneaking in the important stuff. Um, I, I think of it as uh, I'm a parent. It's like sneaking fruit and veggies into a smoothie. Well, Sean, there's a similar aspect with what you write about because your nonfiction and your fiction overlap very much. In your nonfiction, you're advocating for more usage of private contractors, more usage of this. And then of course, the novelization of that is what you're getting with the Tom Locke series. Was this purposeful now, or at least it, is it now becoming purposeful where you're trying to interweave your fiction and your nonfiction? It is purposeful now. It didn't start out that way. I mean, I write um, academic nonfiction, serious nonfiction, but also narrative nonfiction. I find that my novel writing skills improve my nonfiction skills and vice versa. But you know, I find that fiction, uh, to agree with Peter and uh, and Brad, is a magnificent vehicle for truth telling, um, because you it's not because you can reveal the emotional aspects of situations so that the reader is immersed in it in the way that sort of like you know Dolby 7.0 or whatever uh, movie theaters are, and that is that communicates at at non, shall we say, like cognitive levels that are that are subterranean. Um, and so I wrote a book called The New Rules of War, a nonfiction book that is, you know, briefing other governments, um, other entities. Um, but it, the that is the cosmos of the Tom Locke series. So if you want to see what it looks like on the ground, 
you read the novel. And it also points back to nonfiction and vice versa. I think those who can write serious fiction as well as serious, well, they can write fiction that's fun and serious nonfiction, it is a way to reach people. I want to ask all of you about the freedom granted by fiction writing. I want to start with you, Alex. One of the most ridiculously funny things about the terrorists in Victor and the Rubble is that, I'll be honest with you, they were just like us. They had the same bureaucratic BS we deal with every day. And I have to say, I found that very ballsy to do that, right? The idea is you're laughing because terrorists in the cave are having trouble with their briefing. And we're, 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 of course, we're supposed to villainize the bad guys. We're supposed to see them as others. But you put them in a position where you're almost empathizing with their, 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 their bureaucratic troubles because you know you've dealt with it yourself. Is there a freedom that you're granted to go? I know there's absurdity, but there's, of course, a kernel of truth in the absurdity. But how much fun can you have beyond what you kind of limitations of nonfiction when you're writing a novel like that? So, yeah, it's... It's funny you ask. I mean, the, the people sort of look at me strange when they say you wrote a satire of the war on terror. Like, what, how could there possibly any be anything to laugh about uh, with the war on terror? But there is. It was. I I was in the agency. I joined in uh, early 2003. So it it was just after 9/11 and just before Iraq. So it was a very strange time. And you know, eventually we had the Iraq War and then the 2004 intelligence reform. So everything was changing and moving at the time. And it was a lot of dysfunction and a lot of absurdity. And so the question is, well, how do you deal with that? And um, not just me, but I had a lot of friends who were in these positions and in you know, separations and going through a lot of hardships, you have to process it somehow. Um, and I guess it's, it's that laugh or cry thing. And I decided that satire was a, a good way to, to deal with it. Um, and like what the other author said, I, I found that fiction was a, a good way to help me highlight a lot of the the truth of it uh without giving away also the I, any anything classified um i i still have to run everything i write through the publications review board at the cia so um you know i i wanted to be able to explain a lot of these crazy things that i had seen uh, and then putting the terrorists in the positions that we were in that was really what i wanted to do i took our bureaucracy i put it on the terrorist organization and said well let's you know let's sort of see what happens and it doesn't go very well like you said i mean you're kind of rooting for the guy at the end you feel a little bit bad for him and that's and that's what i want to ask you about i mean i think that's the the it's rare there's so many kind of black and white cut and paste bad guys in a lot of the thrillers that are out there not not obviously by the four of you because we would have you otherwise. How do you avoid that? How do you, how do you, do you have to be empathetic in some respects to the bad guy in order to write good characters? So Alex, can you continue on? Do you have to be empathetic a little bit to the terrorists in the caves or to the autocrat in South America, get inside their shoes and think about them in order to write an effective bad guy? Well, I mean, that actually also was part of my job, right? I, I worked in counterterrorism, and when I was in West Africa, that was what I was focusing on. Um, and actually, Mokhtar Bel Mokhtar, who was a, a main big terrorist dude in, in the Sahel, um, was sort of the, the, the model for Omar al-Sakat, who's my main uh, terrorist. And so, you know, I did a lot of research on him. I, I studied who he was. Why, why was he doing the things that he was doing? Um, and same with all of these groups that were, you know, these franchises, as I call them, that were popping up all over the time, all over the place. Um, even Al-Qaeda, UBL. What, 
what makes these people tick? Why are they doing what they're doing? And that was part of my job was trying to understand that. And you have to see them as as humans, as complex humans. They they uh, they don't see themselves as bad guys, right? They, they think they're doing things for a certain reason. Uh, they have families and those types of things. And so you do need to be you need to understand who you're who you're up against. And so it's it's not a black and white thing. Uh, every human is is nuanced and, and complex. Peter, let me ask you a similar question. I mean, to write Ghost Fleet, you kind of had to get into the heads of some of the strategic thinkers inside China to kind of understand a little bit about why they were thinking the way they were. And, and does that does that take lots of research or you just kind of get a general idea and roll with it there? Well, I wanted to echo something that Alex said, um, and I think it's important in both the fiction and when you're doing um, real world uh, work with agencies, uh, in, you know, advisory work or consulting or wargaming or whatnot, um, is that everyone is the hero in their own story. Everyone is also the victim in their own story. And so, um, you know, a flaw of, uh, frankly, you know, not great fiction, but also really bad planning, whether it's in counterterrorism or uh, military plans, is to um, have an adversary who's, uh, you know, pulling the, the mustache and um, acts the way, you know, they're, they're flat, they're one dimensional. They exactly, they've got, you know, a, um, a set plan that you know what the plan is. Um, that's not interesting. It's not entertaining. It's also not useful when you put on your real world hat. Uh, and so, you know, that I think is important to remember. Now, in terms of, um, uh, I, I do research. And the research is, um, it might be pulling from uh, documents. Uh, here's various doctrine and the like. It's also uh, like you would do is, you know, it, it's um, research in terms of sometimes it's interviews. Uh, and you're trying to not just get facts, but little quirks of characters, uh, the way they talk, a little mention of a phrase, the, the way they sit. Um, you're trying to pick up those little details that sell a scene. Um, and sometimes you don't get the opportunity for a, full interview, but you can be a fly on the wall. So um, uh, to the example of China, you know, you can pull up everything from doctrine to I've been able to send it on various sessions with uh, Chinese officers. And so there are certain turns of phrase that they said in reality that are in the book. And so it comes across as real. Um, one last thing that we can do, not with, with Chinese officers, but I, I, my guess is a lot of um, my peers here do, is that when you create something, you can also, you share it with others, both to get their feedback on the fiction side, but also the real world side. So, you know, uh, uh, a, a F-15 pilot was like, actually I would do, I would have pulled this turn rather than that turn. Or um, one of the interesting things that when you're dancing in this space is it's not the big stuff, it's that if you get the tiny detail yeah. wrong, that one detail wrong, you know, a, a Navy officer would say this rather than that, they won't believe the whole plot. And so I share my stuff uh, and we share it widely to get that kind of feedback um, to check it. It's, it's basically red teaming it. It's red teaming your own work. Right. Brad, yeah, Brad, you, you've had now a ton of bad guys, a ton of people you've had to kind of put yourselves in the shoes of. You keep saying number one because you're, you're, you're bouncing from different personality to different personality. But how much work do you put into that? 
Well, it's a ton of work. And I think this idea of everybody's the hero and the victim in their own story in real life and that people are complex and they're nuanced is very important because you think of the richest bad guys maybe you've ever seen in film. And why do you like them? Why do you like a Hannibal Lecter? Why does he resonate with people? There's some depth there. The, the sketch from memory of the Duomo that's in his, uh, his uh, isolation cell. It's just such a fascinating, rich background. You can, uh, people relate. So I love this idea that Alex had about a, a, taking the bureaucracy of the agency and putting it on the, <laughs> the, terror, the terrorists. It's, it's a funny idea. We can all relate to bureaucracy. That's something we can relate to somebody stabbing us in the back in the office or trying to you know, take credit for something that they didn't. And it makes it more human. And that's what adds rich, richness to a character. That's what gives you that three dimension. The one thing you don't want to ever have anybody say about any character in your book is that they're cardboard or two dimensional. And I'll tell you as a fiction author, one of the challenges, particularly for me with those details is I've got guys and they'll say, okay, Thor, this is the way it really works. You'd have eight cutouts before you get to this point. And I, I tell them, I said, nobody's gonna sit and read through eight meetings. I can't do this. And Vince, you and I offline a couple of days ago had joked around about, you know, in the movies and there's surveillance and the guy slips the surveillance like in five minutes, you know, he puts on a different color sweatshirt or puts a hat on and he's gone. And it, we know it doesn't work that way. But if you're in the fiction space, your number one job is to entertain. So entertaining, it's got to move quickly. And you do have to get those details right. One of the pieces of fan mail that I'm most proud of is when it comes from men and women in the military, law enforcement, or the intelligence community. And when they say, you nailed it, that's exactly what it was like for me or whatever. That makes me feel really good because I know I'm, if somebody puts a safety on a Glock in a book, that's okay, that's strike one. You know, I, I won't finish a book. If you get too many small details where you should have been able to go to people and say, hey, is this correct? And you don't get those details right, I won't finish a book. I think it's important. The details are the bedrock of a great thriller. We'll be right back after this. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contain threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. I mean, there's a flip side of that as well, where there's a book, I won't name it. The first chapter of it was so good and so well written to reality that even though the rest of the book was ho-hum, I still recommend it to people because I'm like, just read the first chapter. The rest of it doesn't matter all that much, but read that first chapter because it gets it so right. And they made a movie out of it, it was bad, but that first chapter really matters. And, you know, it's one of these things where that's the trick. And I think that's one of the things that I talked to a couple of you about is it's hard to find the perfect kind of 
coming together of talent and writing and people that will literally do the homework and actually get things right. Because you form, we have a lot of formers who are out there who try to write and they just cannot write their way out of a paper bag and it's formulaic and it's boring. And then there are people out there who can write really well, but they get it all wrong. And so kind of what Brad's talking about here of bringing that together and using life experience is one of the things that we find particularly is I get asked all the time for recommendations about what fiction to read. And it's tough, it's very difficult. And you know, you, you have the old Le Carre and you've got the Ian Flemings, but there's not a whole lot beyond kind of who we have on this call and a couple others that I can point people to because of that problem. Because if you wanna be bored to death, go read the former deputy director of whatever's novel because it's, you know, it's really, really real but you'll read four chapters about a surveillance detection run. Or if you wanna have a wonderful book that was turned into five movies, but is so far from reality, go read that also. It's hard to find that mixture. What's interesting, Sean, is I wanna ask you, because you've made, let me call it not so veiled characters, clearly based on real people. Um, I'm thinking of Eric Prince, for example. How much does fiction give you cover for what might be considered problematic writing in other ways, where you can kind of tweak and actually, you, you, you know, Peter writes a lot about American military, and there's obviously people who are not the CNO in real life, but it's a CNO in your book, and there's kind of little issues there too. And I'm sure Alex has written about people she's run into at the CIA and changed their name a little bit too. So I ask you, like, is it is it, is it nice to be able to kind of go, you know what, everyone's going to know this is Eric Prince, but he can't sue me because it's not his name. Yes. I mean, first of all, <laughs> There's a, there's a certain uh, delight in that. I have to be careful about how I say that, but everything that doesn't go into the nonfiction books goes into the fiction books, right? Uh, and it gives you license to express ideas that we should all think about. Uh, and that's what, and all my characters are based on real people or hybrids. And there, it's more work of, um, it's, it's not so much work of imagination as of, observing uh but the the key as brad has said is as a thriller writer you can never lose sight that you have to keep the reader turning the pages never stop the reader from turning the pages and i don't know what peter's opinion was but i found going from nonfiction to fiction and back to nonfiction to be kind of a, a struggle uh, it's like your brain or my brain works in different ways uh, and also something alex might talk about is that I am still in the in the government, so everything has to be cleared through the Department of Defense. I, I hold top secret clearance. Um, that I have to be very careful of red lines, and you can do that if you know what you're doing and you're careful. But it also changes. There's a there's a con to having too much grounding sometimes in what you're writing about. Yeah, Peter, go ahead. All right, so two, two things I think. One is. Um, what I love about, uh, you know, I'm based in Washington, D.C., and I wonder if the other folks have had this experience, is um, when, it, when it's, there are many people who think that there are certain characters drawn from them, based on them, but it is always the heroes. It's always the hero, you know, the, 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 the people that come out well. No one ever says, oh, you know, that, that awful bureaucrat, that was me. Um, and, you know, and, and, and there tends to be a little bit more inspiration on that on the D.C. side. Um, but to Sean's point, 
I, I think there are some um, similarities, but key differences of when you're going back and forth between fiction and nonfiction. Um, both of them, you have to have sort of a strategic plan. Uh, you're, you know, you're building information of large scale down to tiny details, and then you're figuring out your outline, be it of your argument or be it of the character's journey. Um, now with nonfiction, it's a little bit more of a, of a grind, uh, but the difference I found between fiction and nonfiction is those, um, wonderful moments of inspiration that hit you in the most random places. Uh, you know, it might be out on a walk, it might be in a shower, it might be in a conversation, and you get that little spark of a breakthrough moment of, ooh, this is the character is going to do this, or, or, oh, we just solved how, you know, the character gets out of the, the, the locked room, so to speak. Um, with nonfiction, you don't have those um, lightning bolt moments. Uh, it's more about just kind of pounding through the topic. And, and that to me is, is sort of the difference of it and why, you know, frankly, uh, writing fiction is um, more fun to me personally. I still do both, but it's the one that I, I find more enjoyable. One of my favorite lines is from Mark Twain and Clancy would parrot the line, which is the difference between fiction and reality is people expect fiction to make sense. <laughs> Good. I, I, yeah, I can imagine someone writing a, a fiction book about 2020. You know, yeah. you get after 18 and there's a dust storm coming from after. It'd be like, right. oh. Yeah, that never would happen. Never get published either. You, you dropped the, where did the murder hornets go? You dropped the narrative of the murder hornets. That's one of the problems that I had, actually. When I first wrote Victor in the Rubble, I took a number of real anecdotes of absurd things that had happened to me, to my friends, my colleagues, I twisted and I played with them so that they were fictionalized. But, um, and then I kind of hid them and made up other absurdities, you know, so it was kind of hidden inside the other absurdities. And my editor would sign off and be like, I get this one, I get this. This one is just ridiculous. It's gotta come out, you're gonna lose the reader. And it was, it was like the one that was real, you know, <laughs> like that's it. <laughs> Fiction has to make sense, and the real world just doesn't. So true. A million questions, but I want to ask one last question before I turn it over to the audience and to Amanda. We know what Brad has coming up. His new novel, Near Dark, comes out on July 21st. And I know everyone else has basically just released a book relatively soon. But writers write. Uh, so I'm assuming you're either getting ready for what's next or already working on it. So let me go and ask each of you, starting with Peter, What's next? Is it back to nonfiction or are you you're going, I know you just had a book come out, but it's very rare that we just stop and do nothing. I'm just trying to figure out where to get, you know, uh, a steady supply of toilet paper and all the rest <laughs> from. Um, uh, you know, I, I'm joking, but yeah, uh, there's some other projects. But again, the wonderful difference between um, fiction and reality is that I can actually do operational security on my own work uh, in a way that, you know, U.S. military would, would have revealed through acquisition plans and the like. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm steering away from it. I'm, I'm too busy right now, frankly, you know, trying to spread the word about burn-in. So thanks. Great. Sean? So I just had a book release, um, uh, High Treason, my third novel, yeah. uh, about two or three weeks ago. So I am like Peter uh, in the gerbil wheel phase of spreading the word. Um, but I'm thinking... Um, either an, a fiction book akin to something like Seven Days in May, 
um, but you know, mm. many years ago, uh, yep. I, you know, Tom Locke is a lot of fun, but there's other things to explore. I don't want to, you know, be locked into that to use a bad pun. Um, and, or I've got a lot of people asking me to do a sequel to the new rules of war, maybe the new rules of diplomacy or the new rules of something else. So uh, I'm still playing with bowls. I probably will do both, but the question is in what order? Well, and Alex is loving life in Europe right now, so she has no need to write more, but I know she's thinking about it. So what, what's next for Alex Finland? Yeah, so my second novel, Victor in the Jungle, came out a year ago. Um, and so now I'm working on the third novel, but I, I'm not telling anybody yet what it's about. And, I mean, and all of you are in a position that's not very, it's unenviable. For those that just have a book come out, this is not the best time not to be able to travel around and, and talk about that book. Um, you know, and Alex is in somewhat similar position, it's been about a year, which is kind of when the thinking paperbacks and stuff moving forward to that. Um, how I just this is the broad Vince wants to know, and maybe I, I don't, maybe the listeners do also, but I want to know how frustrating has this been? I mean, I for, for professionals, obviously, this has been a hard time, but the whole key to writing books, whether they're fiction or nonfiction, is when people find out about them, maybe they'll be interested and they want to buy them, but if they don't know they exist, then you can never get them off the shelves. So, Brad, you know. This is not a great time to be released. Even July 21st is not great. I mean, how much struggle have you gone through trying to get information out? Well, it's you can look at it as a struggle or you can look at it as just a field filled with opportunity. Uh, Talib, who did Black Swan, had a book back in 2012 called Anti-Fragile. We don't, no language has a word for the opposite of fragile, where if you shake the hell out of it, it actually gets stronger. So he coined this term anti-fragile, and it's all about taking advantage of black swan events. So I've looked at this as a positive of saying, you know, we were always competing with people watching TV, on the internet, all this kind of stuff. The one thing we don't have, right, we've got everything we've had before. You can advertise on Facebook, you can get the word out on social media. Uh, the one thing you don't have, uh, but it's starting to change, Barnes & Noble is opening back up, so you're getting foot traffic in stores. That was the big thing we were concerned with, is foot traffic. But if you look at it from a position of what's the opportunity here, that's where you're going to be successful. So now we're doing tons of virtual events for near dark, and I will likely have more people show up for a virtual event on a Thursday evening than would get in their car and drive down to their local independent or their local Barnes and Noble to sit for two hours, listen to me talk, get a photograph. I miss the personal connection, the warmth that I have with the readers. I'm very, you know, I'll sit and shake hands and sign every book until everybody's done. So I miss that human contact, but I think we're actually going to be reaching more people with this virtual tour that I'm doing this year than ever before. So it's an opportunity and that's the way I look at it. And I imagine people have more time on their hands and if they're working from home and not commuting and others that they they're looking for entertainment and, and perhaps they, they want to go to a Spire techno thriller for that entertainment. Yep. Yes. So one of the things is um, I think it, it, one you, you put it into context and um, uh, yes, you know, it's it's a challenging environment all around uh, and certainly to release a new product in and you know the publishing industry is, is facing a lot of issues um, you don't get the, you know the the walk-by traffic at the airport uh, someone going on vacation seeing it in a bookstore I mean that's just the reality of it. but you put it in the context I mean uh, you know for August and, and myself both our wives work in um, healthcare, care uh, and you know so we we're 
we're writers. Like we're 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 not essential compared to them being the essential ones, right? Um, but I think uh, one of the things that you, or, or at least I've I've tried to do, you know, is um, you're trying to fall of hitting two different poles, which are sound hard to link together, but um, it's being both escapist and relevant. So escapist, you want to give people something enjoyable, something to, to fall away into a different world. Uh, but I do think um, given at least if you want sort of the ability beyond just straight advertising, what they would call earned media, it has to be relevant to what's going on. Um, and it doesn't mean it has to be exactly on it, but uh, you know, for us, it's the idea that um, many of the trends that were in play before coronavirus with technology have all been advanced by it. And so the issues, you know, the rollout of AI, surveillance, uh, et cetera, um, uh, simply put, the, the things that our characters experience are gonna come true in the real world more rapidly. But I think you do have to be able to speak to something that's going on but there's a final thing that I would push out there that's interesting, um, just as a data point. Uh, during World War II, British book sales, in an actual uh, rationing, British book sales actually doubled. Uh, and what it is is that um, people do, there is a value to books in even kind of the darkest of times. And one of the follow-away things in particular is, even in dystopian fiction, it's always a story of perseverance. So I think one of the relevant things that you can say, whatever the book topic, is that you're following a journey of a character on a tough time. We're all feeling that too. And so that's, you know, that's another part of the story that you can tell in even tough times to make your project relevant, whether it's a spy thriller or a romantic comedy. It's always a story of perseverance. Well, I could ask another 50 questions, but I know the audience is gonna have some. So let me bring Amanda Oki back on to ask uh, to some of the questions from the audience that have been sending them in. There's Amanda. Take over a little bit here. Hi, so um, since we were mentioning the pandemic, um, someone asked a question about how would the pandemic, do you think this is something that is ever going to be um, useful in fiction, in thrillers, like this pandemic landscape? I know we're all still in it, but um, or is there going to be any appetite for that? That is a broad question. Alex. Uh, I, I think actually, yeah. I mean, I, I, I am now writing my third novel. I actually started it during the quarantine. And there was, I, one of the hard things about starting it was what you guys were all referring to before is, is this going to be relevant post-coronavirus? Like the, what I'm writing about, is it even going to matter anymore? But I think it's actually laying a, a really interesting landscape. I think there's um, it makes us think about bioterrorism differently, and maybe there are you know themes that you can play with there. Um, but also, I I wrote a, an article with a former colleague, David Priest, about how do you spy when the world is shut down. Oh, David, and uh, uh, you know when all of these lockdowns came in, what does an operations officer do? But we have to keep getting information, right? And especially there's been a lot of concern, what's the origin of the virus? Um, how do we get that? When you cannot go out and meet a source, you can't travel anymore. You're not doing brush passes. You're not doing brief encounters. You can't do any of this. Um, so how do you spy in that kind of a world? And I think that actually, um, that's a 
fertile ground, I think, to, to dig into for fiction. Yeah, I, I saw you, Brian. I, I would say, like, we as a museum haven't even started thinking about that yet. Like, I know we're going to have to start thinking about, like, the impact of the coronavirus on the broader national security intelligence world. We just haven't really had the time to kind of hunker down. So it's interesting to hear you say that, Alex. Brad. So I'm going to combine what Alex and Peter have both said. So I've done two novels I, uh, that dealt with, uh, so one was bioterrorism, uh, my book Blowback, and then Code of Conduct was about a, a, a virus. Uh, and so what's interesting is at those times, we weren't dealing with those things. So Alex is absolutely right. If you're supposed to be six feet apart from somebody and you're wearing a mask, I mean, all these things we think about, brush passes and in meetings in different places, how do you do that? So to Alex's point, absolutely right. And to link it to Peter's point, I, I'm not going to write in a post-COVID world because I think for the next year or two, people are still going to want that escape. And that's what I'm in the business of selling is escape. It's book in the hand, toes in the sand. I want you to forget about everything else. So I'm not going to touch this the same way I never touched bin Laden because I knew eventually he was going to end up dead. And I don't want to have a book coming out and it's Corona, 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 and there's a vaccine and Corona's gone or it's disappeared like SARS. So I'm staying away from it for the next couple of years at least. Peter? No, I think um, what we've seen both in the pandemic, but um, also in the, the wave of protests following George Floyd's killing is um, uh, a surfacing of issues and trends and frankly weaknesses and divisions that were already there just kind of making it more self-evident um whether it's the you know to, to link to brad's point whether it's the the uh fragility of the u.s healthcare system or um you know obviously uh police uh killings but um what i'm getting at is that i do think one of the effects that we all uh both as a nation but also as writers are going to have to deal with is that these issues have been surfaced. They're in your face now. There's um, and and cutting through all of them. You know whether it's the the idea of these new technology trends to uh, healthcare to whatnot is. Um, uh, I, I tweak a little bit, Brad. What you I wouldn't say fragility. It's a brittleness to America. Various things that seemed kind of strong that are actually quite breakable. And um, I think uh, for all of us as writers, whatever the setting is, whether it's a geopolitical story or something just said in one kind of neighborhood, uh, we are going to have to kind of deal with that context. It may not have to be, it's not a pandemic story, but it is a different America and a different way of both the world looks at us. And we also kind of look at ourselves that comes out of this. It, 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 and that's a great point where I've been focused, particularly uh, during this current administration, because of the divisions and people are pro, they're con. I've, I've taken a lot of my storylines out of the White House because I don't want people to read too much into them. So I'm playing a little bit with the bureaucracy at the agency and things like this. But where I shifted uh, several years ago was what happens with a war weary public who's been in Afghanistan. We've sent our sons and daughters to Iraq. Uh, and what happens if a small Baltic state gets invaded by the by the Russians, one of our NATO partners? We have that Article 5 in the NATO Charter, an attack on one is an attack on all. And so I've pivoted to try to get away from some of the domestic politics to recognize fragility and some of these other things and say, okay, what would America be willing to do to avoid getting pulled into an Article 5? 
That way I can encompass everyone without really appearing to come down on a side politically. So I know just as a pure fiction author, I've really had to be careful about how I'm threading the needle because again, I don't want to turn people off. I want to turn them on. I want right. them to flip those pages and have a great read. Um, another question about, you know, really what's happening today. How do social movements um, affect you all, impact you all as writers? Are you feeling a need now to have more diverse characters? You know, have you been feeling that need? Um, or do you just, you know, go with um, what is selling? Sean, this is a great question for you. Was, uh, the areas that you operate within, within yeah. your books and reality. Yeah. So my, my fiction uh, is closely based on things I've done or know about. There, it's, it's not just pure imagination. And one of the things that I've really uh, striven to accentuate are strong female characters in the thriller genre, because there, for for decades, much many authors, not on this not on this call, obviously, uh, female characters have been stock characters, right? They really haven't evolved much yet. I know women from the field, and you know, women like Alex and others, right? Um, who who are strong heroes in their own right, and we need to think about this differently beyond the mold. And I use fiction again. It's not just to we, it's it's not just to tell about current events. It's also to to inform us with a mirror. How do we think about ourselves and our society? Can I yeah. check? Oh, sorry, Alex. Okay. Um, I think it's an interesting question, actually, because I've been asked the question, my protagonist is Victor Caro, he's a man. And then people have asked me, well, why didn't you make your protagonist a woman? And while I understand the writing to escape and all of that, I also was trying to highlight some of the reality of what it is uh, to work inside the bureaucracy. And I started Victor in the Rubble actually with a female character. And she was running into problems that I wasn't interested in dealing with yet. Um, I, I actually think that women officers to, uh, have to juggle things differently sometimes than, than the men do. And it, and it was simply going towards subjects I wasn't prepared at that point to, to write about. I didn't want to be writing about it. So I made the conscious decision actually to change and to make a male protagonist. Peter? It's interesting. Um, so our protagonist in Burnin is is a female and, and and echoing what Sean said uh, I think there's a challenge in the field um, of either they're not there they're one-dimensional um, or they're if they are there they're the one B they're always the helper to the male hero and and Keegan at the center of our story um, you know she's based off of real world people and I think part of that is also allows you to develop a richer character so Yes, she's a FBI agent, but she's also a mom of a five-year-old. She's also in a marriage that's falling apart. And that allows you, I think, to, to it's a more entertaining journey because it's more realistic because we have these sort of multiple identities that we're all juggling. Um, I will say, you know, what I try and do is um, mirror the sort of the diversity of the real world. And it, you know, you in, in the real world, you've got people of different ethnicities, you've got people of different sexual orientations. Um, and, you know, you reflect that in your characters. Um, I do think there's what, in terms of the new that I've grown more conscious of over the last uh, several months is um, a movement to lift up other voices uh, in, in our professional setting. Uh, so, um, for example, a couple of days from now, there's a there's an online, uh, it's called uh, Share the Mic. 
and basically it's for people like myself who work in cybersecurity uh, and we are um, handing over our social media platforms uh, in this case to a, just a phenomenal African-American woman who works in cybersecurity to help sort of share the mic and get her uh, you know use the platform that I've got to help her reach wider audiences and then people will follow her so I think what I'm getting at is that um, we can there's what we can do in our fiction but there's also different various things that we can do in the role that we have as kind of you know, professionals in this space. That is terrific. Now this, this one, I, I really enjoyed this question, which is how do you think novels like yours or novels from the past have uh, served as say open source for our adversaries or friendly adversaries? How do you think this has shaped what other countries or terrorist groups think about the U.S. Sean, start. I, I uh, may have a similar experience to Peter, I can only guess, but I, from my nonfiction, The New Rules of War, I was remember briefing uh, at Whitehall, which is uh, sort of the Pentagon in London for the British Ministry of Defense, and, and uh, a very concerned general came up to me and says, you should never have written this because now our adversaries will read it and get ideas and they'll reference things like, um, uh, you know, Blitzkrieg uh, and, uh, you know, Billy Mitchell. In the 1920s and 30s, it had these people who are rightly or wrongly attributed to allies, giving their enemies their, their own ideas of demise. Uh, and of course, the, the novel's High Treason is an example of that in real time, but fun. So, uh, but I think ultimately, for me, my calling is to is to show these ideas and let people think of them what they may. Um, and um, and Peter, I know you've done some very similar things, and probably Brad, since you're red teaming for the Pentagon, we know that you've done these things. So I'll I'll, I'll jump in on that. I, I had you know two funny experiences that sort of illustrate this. Um, uh, one was. Um, uh, you know, you get various people, you know, people that come up to you at different book events. And at one event, a um, Chinese PLA colonel uh, came up to me and, you know, talked about oh, how popular your book is among our officers, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I smiled back and said, oh, that's interesting because I didn't sell the Chinese language rights. Uh, and, you know, he had a smile back, which was, yeah, we, you know, <laughs> intellectual property theft of a different kind. And then you also have, and uh, this may be the others, you have people with um, really, really bad tradecraft that show up at your event. So, you know, he was in uniform. It was very obvious. There's also uh, been, um, you know, attractive young women. And you're just like, come on, let's, this is like, we can see through what's going on here. Um, but, you know, to the point of the concern, um, my answer to it is they already know. Uh, and, you know, so like as an example, um, we in, in burn-in, there is a, a cybersecurity vulnerability in water treatment plants uh, that the bad guys go after. I'm plot spoiling a little bit, but um, it happened in Israel two weeks ago in reality. It wasn't because someone read the book and that, that quickly deployed. It was, it was a known vulnerability among bad guys. What we're doing just is surfacing it for people on the defender side to be aware of it, talk about it, do something about it. Um, and so in many ways, what, you know, besides entertainment, when you move over to the useful fiction side, what you're trying to do is not prediction, but prevention. 
All right, we have a ton of questions and I want everyone to know we'll, we will do our best to email the list to all the authors. They're very particular ones, but this seems like a nice final question. We'll run over a couple minutes so everyone can answer this. But of course, what advice would you give to young authors starting out in this genre? Brad, start us off. So one of the greatest lines I've ever heard, and I share this with every young author I meet, I ask him a question. Do you know what the difference is between a published author and an unpublished author? The published author never quit. And you need that special operations mentality. It is all about your determination, your grit. Don't quit. Have the sensory acuity to be able to take constructive criticism so you can make your craft better but don't quit, that's the difference. And I would, I would encourage people, it's, it's a siren song to just go self-publish someplace. But if you're good, stay at it. Try to get with one of the big publishing houses. Just keep hitting it, keep hitting it, keep hitting it. And final thing, whenever you read uh, agents, when you query agents, the agents will say, only query one agent at a time. That is the worst piece of advice you're ever gonna get because it could take three months for an agent to get back to you. Pick the top 10, top 15 you love, and shotgun them. Whoever gets you first is lucky. Don't let them set the rules. You set the rules. Wow, that was tough. Who else? Who else? <laughs> Alex. I would say the best is just just write and don't censor yourself and just keep going. Like Brad said, it's just we have, we all have it in us to do it. So if you like it, just do it. Sean, I think writing. Um, is a two-step process it's throw up clean up throw up clean up and i joke that some people ask me like well how do you write you know nonfiction and fiction and i say well for serious nonfiction, it's up early in the morning lots of coffee for fiction late at night scotch there you go i like that and peter study the fiction that you love and pull back and think about why do you love it um, and it might be the overall themes, it might be the little moments in it. Uh, and when I say fiction, I mean not just novels, but of any form. Um, there's a scene in our book that came out of uh, me sort of wrestling with what I love so much about Tarantino movies. Um, and so again, you know, we're, we're all readers first. So if you love this style, this approach, this little detail, um, if you bake it into your work, then it's going to be all the more compelling. Wow. Um, this was so fun. I enjoyed listening to you all uh, chat with each other as well. And I jump in really quickly and say, if you like any of these authors, uh, I've podcasted with all of them and I will podcast with Brad before his book comes out. There's a couple with Sean, there's one with Alex, there's one with Peter on Ghost Fleet. And we might do it again sometime in the future. So go to SpyCast. You can have your long conversations one-on-one -on -one with each of these authors. And again, Brad, that'll come out right when his book comes out to hear about what's happening with Near Dark. So thank you. The International Spy Museum is a full 501c3 nonprofit. If you want to donate to the museum or if you're local and want to volunteer at the museum, please visit our website at spymuseum.org for more information. Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T-Minus Space Daily, and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. We here at N2K CyberWire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary 
and we'd like to know how we're doing. Please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us. Thank you.